It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, we're heading into Super Bowl weekend. In fact, the big game is one of two uh, major events on Sunday. The other one, Media Buzz, hope you'll watch at 11 Eastern. But I got to tell you, it doesn't feel like we're coming up on Super Bowl Sunday. Having watched uh, the media hype uh, through way decades of Super Bowls, and in fact, one year I went up for what's called Media Day, uh, interviewed Michael Strahan, now of course on Good Morning America, uh, but he was a former, he was much more of an NFL analyst than former player. Um, it just feels like low key, right? I mean, the media have their storyline. It's Tom Brady. He's a 43 year old quarterback. That's the equivalent of being, I don't know, a 78 year old president. Uh, and you know, he's been in nine Super Bowls with New England, won six of them, and now here he is, first year with Tampa Bay. A lot of people thought he was washed up. Playing at home, which almost never happens, uh, for the Buccaneers against the Kansas City Chiefs, who I guess are favored. Um, so, you know, even a lot of people who hate the Patriots are kind of rooting for Brady or just want to see what Brady does. But they're just, I guess it's COVID and the fact that there's only going to be 25,000 fans in the stands at Tampa Bay. And then another 30,000 cardboard cutouts. I mean, why? What is the possible purpose of having fake fans at this real event? Uh, why? Does it make it more exciting for people at home? Look, I'm sure we'll get a mass audience. Everybody will be talking about the commercials. But it just feels like the most restrained Super Bowl that I can remember in a long, long time. Uh, in fact, in a semi-desperate effort to uh, jack up interest in the big game, Tom Brady uh, was on Jimmy Kimmel. And doing the mean tweets segment where you read a lot of mean tweets about yourself. Uh, one of them he read said, is there anyone you'd rather see dropped in a vat of rendered bacon fat than Tom Brady? This one was kind of uh, mean. Uh, I hope this loss depresses you so much you can hardly have sex with your supermodel wife in your giant mansion. Brady read that and said, well, I have no comment to that. And he zipped his lips. So he was a good sport. Uh, and we'll see how the game goes uh, on Sunday. And maybe it's a good thing. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll just be a really good football game without all of the, you know, trash talking and uh, usual media hyperbole that often ac accompanies these things. Uh, meanwhile, a word came out yesterday. I guess the deal had actually been signed last fall when his father was running for president. But Hunter Biden is going to be publishing a book that's coming out in April, I believe. Uh, about addiction and about his fight uh, against drug addiction. And look, he has every right to talk about drug addiction. But I got to tell you, I am stunned. I am stunned, and I don't stun easily, that Hunter Biden is coming out with the book. Given all the political pain he has caused his dad with his poor judgment and his foreign influence peddling, I would have thought he'd lie low for the next four years. Now, I, the Bidens put out a statement. I, they're very proud of Hunter. And I understand how Joe Biden feels about his surviving son. And maybe he sees this as a way to rehabilitate his image. And obviously, you know, you don't sell this book cheap. He's going to make a lot of money at it. But Hunter Biden is under federal investigation. And once this book rolls out, you know, he'll want to talk about addiction. You know, it will dredge up all the old questions about Ukraine and Burisma and China, which I think President Biden doesn't really need to get into, assuming that the investigation itself doesn't go anywhere it's kind of hard to avoid the conclusion that he's again trading on the family name. And one other interesting tidbit here, the book is being brought out by Simon & Schuster, the same publishing giant that canceled Josh Hawley's book, Senator Josh Hawley, after the Capitol riot, because Hawley 
uh, while certainly not advocating violence, was a leader. He was the first senator, to, Republican senator, to come out and say uh, we, we should challenge the Electoral College results. We should not certify Joe Biden as the president-elect. Um, when that came up, and that, of course, kind of energized many of the more fringe or violence-prone Trump supporters uh, into the riot of January 6th. If you've been following the Parler saga, Parler is still basically offline, but the CEO, uh, John Mates, uh, has been fired from Parler, and he now says he's been silenced and pushed out by conservative financier Rebecca Mercer when he proposed policies to moderate content on the platform. Uh, he said, I did not participate in this decision. Uh, this has been the true American dream, an idea from a living room to a company of considerable value. I'm not saying goodbye just so long for now. He told NPR uh, yesterday that Mercer uh, decided to push for his firing after he suggested policies on moderating content that is violent or supportive of, a Q of the QAnon movement. I got silenced as a result. Well, I don't know. Can you know the reason that Parler was kicked off mine by Amazon and Apple and Google was precisely because too many threats and violent stuff and crazy conspiracy theories were allowed on the side. You got to have some moderation, right? Uh, so Rebecca Mercer is on the board of the company, I guess, and Mate says he was never really involved in the company. But once November 2020 came around, she was ready to insert herself into every discussion. So I don't know. What does the company do now? Hire a new CEO and try to get back online? Was, was Mates really the problem? Anyway, let's get down to business here, folks, with story number one. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who else? You know, it's so funny if you just take a step back. Uh, a month or two ago, I doubt 96% of Americans have heard of Marjorie Taylor Greene. But suddenly, this freshman... Congresswoman, you know, she's been in office about a month, from Georgia, uh, who had been a big QAnon supporter, became the biggest issue in the country. And a lot of that was the media, but a lot of that was the way in which the Republican Party was roiled over all of these terrible things that she said that came out from CNN and other news organizations. So as you probably know by now, the House voted almost strictly along party lines yesterday, 230 to 199 to kick Marjorie Greene off the Education Committee and off the Budget Committee. Eleven Republicans bucked the party to join Democrats in saying this woman shouldn't uh, be allowed to have these committee assignments. And basically, this sort of neuters you as a member of Congress. It's one step short of expelling you because, um, you know, that's where you have hearings, you question witnesses, maybe you lead a subcommittee. You propose bills. I mean, otherwise, you ba I mean, her basic duties now are going to be to vote on the floor. She can lobby other members. She could introduce bills. But, you know, 90% of what members of Congress do is in committee and subcommittee. So this happened after the Republicans had a chance because in the modern era, this has never happened. And we'll get to that in a second. The Republicans had a chance. Kevin McCarthy had a chance to do this on their own and not have the Democrats impose it on them. But they decided, after what was described as an apology by Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, not to take any action against her. You know, behind the scenes, McCarthy, he said, well, you know what, Dems, uh, we'll take her off the Education Committee, we'll take her off the Budget Committee, but let's just stick her on a small business committee. He's just looking to save face. And the Dems said, thanks, but no thanks. 
they wanted this woman out of the committee business. Now, she went on the floor uh, yesterday. She did not apologize. She disavowed. She distanced. She said, oh, you know, this was amazing. A member of Congress going on the floor to say that the attacks of September 11th, 2001, absolutely happened. And the reason she had to say that was she had questioned whether a plane actually hit the Pentagon on 9-11. That's how far gone some of her beliefs were. She also said the school shootings, which she had previously said, Parkland High School and I guess Sandy Hook, were staged. They were false flag. No one was really killed there. Well, now she says the school shootings are absolutely real. So she's wearing this mask emblazoned with free speech. Again, she spoke for about eight minutes. She's supposed to have a news conference today. She said, these were words of the past that do not represent me. And she said, if lawmakers want to crucify her, it will create a big problem. Um, but what happened is the Democrats, I mean, you, you can't say this wasn't personal. You just can't. I mean, one of the things that her Facebook page had liked was, let's put a bullet in Nancy Pelosi's brain, in her head. You think the Speaker of the House is going to show any mercy or any willingness to compromise after that? the school shootings, and then the Republicans put her on the Education Committee, the Jewish laser from outer space uh, said to have caused one of the California forest fires. Are you kidding me? And other, you know, anti-Semitic and Islamophobic conspiracy theories. And here's Pelosi. You would think the Republican leadership of the Congress would have some sense of responsibility to this institution. For some reason, they've chosen not to go down that path. They did it. In 2019, when Steve King, the former Republican congressman from Iowa, questioned why the term white supremacist was considered offensive. They kicked him off his committee assignments, and then he lost last year. But they wouldn't do this to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And Kevin McCarthy, who originally said very little, so, oh, I think what she said is terrible, but she apologized, she doesn't believe this anymore. Um, so Marjorie G Taylor Greene told the House that she had followed QAnon until sometime in 2018. And here's the quote. I was allowed to believe things that weren't true. And I would ask questions about them and talk about them, and that is what absolutely what I regret. I was allowed to believe things by who? Who allowed you? You allowed yourself to believe these things. And as um, news organizations are pointing out, even after 2018, she still was embracing some pretty crazy stuff. For example, last year, there was a city, she made a series of a social media posts, including liking a Facebook comment that endorsed the Pelosi shooting. So that's not in 2018 when she says she swore off QAnon. In that same year, she said that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been replaced with a body double. What? Seriously? Wow. As you know, in that same House Republican gathering, Liz Cheney held on to her post 145 in favor, 61 against. So that was a vote of confidence, even though you could say, well, look, 61 uh, members of the House Republican Caucus voted to kick Liz Cheney out because she voted for impeachment. But even Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, has said that the loony lies of Marjorie Taylor Greene are a cancer on the Republican Party and the culture. Now, Kevin McCarthy does have one point. If the majority party can kick off 
uh, uh, or deny community assignments to somebody in the minority party. Usually the, the parties police their own members. Then McCarthy says, I have a long list of Democrats who we'd like to remove from committees. And everybody who knows who's on this list is AOC, it's Ilhan Omar, and, and others. Steny Hoyer, the number two House Democrat, gave a pretty impassioned speech, and he put up uh, over a blown-up picture of some graphic that Marjorie Taylor Greene had posted when she was running for Congress. So she will take it to the squad. And it was a picture, it was a picture of Marjorie Greene holding, you know, an AR-15 assault rifle and pictures of, you know, Omar and uh, Presley and maybe AOC. And that was a sort of a dramatic moment. Um, I do think if the, House, if the Republicans re- regain control of the House, there may be some payback on this. But, you know, Pelosi herself said, if this is setting a precedent, so what? If one of our members, one of our Democrats, you know, endorses the assassination of public figures, we'll be the first to want to kick them off committees. Oh, sorry. So what, where does all this lead? Let's go to story number two. Interesting column by Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. And I often look to Rich, who I've known for many, many years, um, to see what's sort of the mainstream sentiment uh, in the conservative movement. And he talks about an attack on the Republican Party, which is what this is, and which is what the Trump impeachment trial will be as well. And we'll get to that later in the podcast. And Lowry kind of sums up the coverage. Former chair of the Washington State GOP wrote an op-ed in the Seattle Times uh, with the headline, Let's Form a New Republican Party. Chris Saliza in CNN had a piece headline, Should Republicans Disband the GOP? Jonathan Last, uh, formerly the Weekly Standard, wrote a piece in the New Republic titled, The Republican Party is Dead. It is the Trump cult now. Washington Post conservative columnist Kathleen Parker said, The party isn't doomed, it's dead. So we're hearing a lot of obituaries here. That seems a mite premature, says Lowry, about a party that represents roughly half the country and is on the cusp of a majority in the House, tied 50-50 in the Senate, and controls the governorship in 27 states, and both the governorship and the state legislature in 22 of those states. Now, Lowry, not a huge Donald Trump fan, says the party does need to get beyond Trump, who's a three-time loser now in the 28 midterms, in his 2020 re-election campaign, and in the Georgia special elections that basically did give the Democrats control of the Senate with that 50-50 tie. In electoral terms, he says, all the winning, remember you're going to get tired of winning? Stopped in 2016. Uh, So interesting, uh, Rich says, it feels now as though the post-Trump GOP will never arrive, but American politics moves quickly. Richard Nixon resigned in 1974, facing certain impeachment. The GOP was in disarray, and six years later, Ronald Reagan won the presidency. There will inevitably be some overwhelming controversy in the Biden administration or a crisis that moves us beyond the politics of the Trump presidency. He says, the temptation to splinter from the GOP might be alluring, but it's a dead end. The Republican Party is the only plausible electoral vehicle for any sort of right-of-center politics in a member. It is worth fighting over, and it will be. And I agree with that. We need a two-party system in America. And if you have some, you know, the never-Trumpers go to some new party and the remainder Trump, acolytes create, they can still call it the Republican Party, I think Democrats will win every election. But I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think the Republican Party is dead. But here's the flip side. Uh, Never Trumper, uh, respected conservative columnist Pete Wenner, writing in The Atlantic, looks at it differently. He says, in the wake of Donald Trump's insane conspiracy theory that his, quote, landslide election victory was stolen from him, 
in the aftermath of the violent siege in the Capitol, and with the arrival in the House of a full-fledged QAnon supporter, Marjorie Taylor Greene, many Republicans are unnerved by how radicalized their party has become after they spent nearly five years empowering and supporting Trump and Trumpism, at best looking the other way, at worst publicly defending Trump and cheering him on, it is belatedly dawning on more than a few Republicans that they risk being devoured by the forces they placed in control. And he says there's no off switch. Now, this is an interesting take because during the years when President Trump was riding high, you know, never got over 50% in the polls, but he was the dominant figure in American politics. Uh, everybody had to react to him. The media, the fake news media, as he called it, um, Democrats, uh, particularly in the beginning, before they took the House, and then even for the final two years, they, they were the minority party in the Senate. Everybody had to live in Donald Trump's world. Um, and Pete Wenner embraces Mitch McConnell, saying that Marjorie Taylor Greene and the embrace of loony lies and conspiracy theories is a cancer for the Republican Party. But, he says, McConnell said and did nothing. And with a few exceptions, like Mitt Romney, no one else said or did anything either. They went along for the ride, some hoping to use Trump to advance policies they believed in. And I think that's true. How many times did you hear tax cuts and judicial nominations? Others, says Wenner, gambling that sticking with Trump would enhance their power and the size of the party, and still others living in fear that anyone who stood up to Trump would be attacked and destroyed by him. Attacked and destroyed by him. But a party that defended Trump's every assault on decency and reality shouldn't be surprised when someone like Green, who not only expressed support for the execution of Democratic leaders, but has also said the Parkland and Sandy Hook school shootings were false flag operations, the worst wildfire, as I mentioned, in California history, caused by a space laser that might have been funded by Rothschild, Inc. The Clintons had John F. Kennedy Jr. killed. And uh, former DNC staffer Seth Rich was murdered by the gang MS-13, kind of the henchman of the Obama administration. I mean, this goes on and on and on. But Wenner also comes down by saying, with you know, a slight optimistic note, he says, there is, a, there is the opportunity for Republicans in a post-Trump era to forge a different path, one that again places morality at the center of politics. But this is the indictment, and Pete Wenner is a good writer, and this is how he lays it out. And a lot of other Republicans and conservatives are going to disagree. A lot of liberals are going to agree. But it kind of, it's kind of the unified theory of all of this. The Trump presidency, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the siege at the Capitol on January 6th that claimed five lives, um, the refusal of the House Republicans to, pudge, to punish Marjorie Greene, uh, and so many offshoots. It's basically that Republicans, by doing one of several things, empowering Donald Trump, empowering people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, or looking the other way, or just acquiescing in, or being placid about um, some of the crazy conspiracy theories that President Trump embraced, culminating, I mean, remember he was talking about Joe Scarborough was responsible for the death of an intern in his office two decades ago, that sort of thing. Completely untrue, uh, completely belied by the facts. You know, and Trump used to do this. And, you know, the ultimate conspiracy theory was the stolen election. I won in a landslide, despite the fact that all of these judges, some appointed by Republicans, some appointed by Donald J. Trump, found no evidence of widespread fraud, despite the fact that Bill Barr's Justice Department, 
found no evidence of widespread fraud. So now it's sort of like Republicans, your chickens are coming home to roost, you created this, and now it's a monster, it's out of control, it's a Frankenstein you created, and it's out of your control. Now I don't, I, I have to offer some caveats here. Every Republican isn't responsible for this. Every one of the 74 million uh, Americans who voted for Donald Trump isn't responsible for this. Um, they don't all support conspiracy theories. They don't all support QAnon. They don't all support Marjorie Taylor Greene. Is it fair to hold Republican members of Congress accountable for some of the things that they did? Sure, absolutely. That's politics. Um, but when you spread it so widely, it's the, everybody who calls him or herself a Republican is responsible for what happened uh, with the insurrection of the Capitol. That's simply not true. It's, it's the opposition and the never-Trumpers trying to tar an entire party to discredit that party so that they can rebuild the party the way they think it should be rebuilt without Donald Trump, without the Marjorie Greens of the world, um, and more of a classic conservative party. Remember, Donald Trump was never a classic conservative. He wasn't a small government guy. He wanted to protect uh, Medicare and Medicaid. I think that's one of the reasons he won in 2016. He ran as a populist, a right-leaning populist. He didn't buy into uh, a lot of the stuff. I mean, yes, he, he said a lot of things and so he'd get the evangelical vote, but I think he ran almost as an independent. He took on the Republican establishment and he won. And had he governed differently, had he tried to uh, steer a slightly different course, had he not you know, spent uh, so much time at war with political enemies, with the media, um, and I'm not saying change his fundamental political positions, but had he just, and had he, of course, bottom line, had he recognized the COVID-19 threat for what it was, not minimized it, not saying it was going to go away by April, not saying we've turned the corner, I think he would have won re-election. It's as simple as that. That was the challenge that he could not rise to as president. And now it's Biden's challenge. And I just saw Ron Klain, his chief of staff on TV, saying we're doing everything we can to get more vaccines made, to get more vaccinators, and to get more vaccination sites. But ultimately, you need more doses. So this is becoming, will become, President Biden's problem. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number four. If you uh, stayed up into the early morning hours today, you watched the vote on the president's coronavirus relief package. The Senate, for the first time, with Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the 50-50 tie, passed this final vote was about 5.30 in the morning. This is a 15-hour marathon. Passed, uh, or at least, you know, sort of uh, cleared the way for passage of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that Biden really wants. Now, Republicans are saying, oh, he's not really compromising. Yeah, he met with these 10 Republican senators, but not really giving much. You know what? The Democrats know, and this vote proves, that they can push this um, bill pretty much the way Biden wants. I'll get to some exceptions in a moment through a budget process called reconciliation. Basically, party line vote, Republicans have nothing to say about it. And before Republicans get up in arms, Republicans did the very same thing in 2017 with the Trump tax cuts. And the uh, President Obama did the very same thing uh, in 2010 with Obamacare. So it's, 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 it's raw political power that presidents use when they feel like they can't get a bipartisan vote. And so there was this voterama, as it's called up on the Hill, the Republicans put forth dozens and dozens of amendments to try to change this bill. And it was an interesting test. Uh, they tried to force Democrats to um, vote on, you know, politically tricky issues, as the Washington Post puts it. 
One of them was seeking to block funding for schools that haven't reopened in person for in-person learning once teachers have been vaccinated. Failed on a party-line vote. Another GOP amendment. Um, ensuring state and local jurisdictions cooperate with federal law enforcement authorities. Failed on party lines. Democrats blocked an amendment by uh, Tom Cotton aimed at opposing packing the Supreme Court. In other words, things that have nothing to do with coronavirus relief. Not that I agree with packing the Supreme Court. They also blocked uh, an amendment from another Republican that sought to uh, say that inmates, prison inmates, can't receive stimulus checks. Now, two Democrats, John Manchin, excuse me, two Democrats, Joe Manchin and John Tester, joined with Republicans to approve an amendment uh, by a Republican senator aimed at overturning Joe Biden's move to block construction of the Keystone Pipeline. See how that turns out. Uh, 99 to 1 approval of an, the amendment by Manchin and Susan Collins, bipartisan agreement, to ensure that high-income taxpayers do not get stimulus payments. But it doesn't define high income. So the battle there is Biden wants it for individuals making as much as 75000 The Republicans want to take it down to 50000 for an individual, the president says he's open to that, but he doesn't want major reductions. He says, we have to go big. We have to be bold. We, he said this morning in a White House pool spray, uh, we can't do enough, but there's a danger of doing too little. Uh, and finally, there was the minimum wage business. So Journey Ernst brings an amendment to say the federal minimum wage shouldn't be raised during a pandemic. And I've said from the beginning that I thought it was a tactical error for the Biden administration to put the $15 minimum wage into the coronavirus bill. It, it's, it's a liberal wish list thing. It may be a great idea. It should be voted on separately. It just makes it look like they're using this as a Christmas tree, to get, even though it's we're past Christmas, um, to get everything that they want. And Bernie Sanders, the biggest single proponent of raising the minimum wage, agreed. He went along with this with Journey Ernst. He says, look, my minimum wage proposal would phase in over five years and doesn't occur immediately. We shouldn't raise the minimum wage on businesses, particularly small businesses, during a pandemic. So this was passed in the unanimous vote. So I think it's the one thing that will get stripped out of, the one major thing that will get stripped out of the Biden bill. But this thing is going to pass. And one of the reasons Biden is pushing it as hard as he is is he's got a bunch of popular policies. If you look at this Quinnipiac survey I mentioned yesterday, more than two-thirds of Americans support, support the Biden nearly $2 trillion COVID-19 relief package. And it includes something like over a third of Republicans. Also, and this is, is interesting if they come back on this, the Q poll says uh, that there's majority support for $15 minimum wage, for $1,400 stimulus checks. Um, on the question of stimulus checks, in that poll, even 64% of Republicans support those higher checks. Meanwhile, that poll also found widespread support for Biden rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, opening a pathway to citizenship for illegal immigrants, and ending uh, the Trump ban on travel from some predominantly Muslim countries. So that's one of the reasons that Biden is coming on as strong as he does. He's got support in the polls. Getting it through the hill is another question. And finally, story number five. Spent a lot of time in impeachment yesterday. The trial coming up on Tuesday. Politico has a piece that allies of Trump are urging his impeachment team to avoid one topic when they defend him next week, the Capitol riot, which is the whole reason for the second impeachment. Uh, by the way, 
the House managers uh, invited Trump to testify. He said, no way, it's a publicity stunt. And he's right. It was a publicity stunt. There was no way he was ever going to agree to that. Because he's going to be acquitted. He doesn't have to show up. He doesn't have to lift a finger. But the argument uh, that some of these Republicans are making is this. Um, here's Steve Bannon, recently pardoned by Donald Trump. Democrats have a very emotional and compelling case. They're going to try to convict him in the eyes of the American people and smear him forever. And I've been saying this in different language. The point of this impeachment trial, which the Democrats know from the test vote, almost all Republicans are going to vote to acquit. Donald Trump will be able to claim victory. But that you're going to try him in the court of public opinion. It's going to get saturation TV coverage all week. It's going to be done, I think, in a few days. But it's going to be aimed at discrediting Trump even more, reminding people of the awful violence of January 6th and why Trump shouldn't be the leader of the Republican Party or shouldn't run again in 2024, though he'd be legally entitled to. Now, Trump's legal team, I think, is already there. They, don't want, they, they know the Democrats are going to try to turn this into a kind of retelling of the story of the riots with lots and lots of um, chilling video. And they've centered their legal case on the process stuff. Is it constitutional to impeach a president after he's left office? Should we convict Donald Trump now that he lives at Mar-a-Lago? They don't want to get into, oh, here's a person quoted by Politico, unnamed, familiar with the strategy. We don't need to focus on January 6th because this is unconstitutional. There's a lot of technical legal arguments that are going to be discussed. But the Republicans can't stop the Democrats from putting on the show the way they want to put on the show. They could call witnesses, but that'll certainly have the trial stretch past a week. Um, and so it's going to be a trial in the court of public opinion and only secondarily a Senate impeachment trial, the outcome of which everybody now knows, including every journalist who will breathlessly cover this, including me. I will be on TV talking about it. So have a great weekend, folks. Uh, enjoy the Super Bowl. Enjoy Media Buzz if you have a chance to watch. We'd be very grateful if you subscribe on your Amazon device if you got one of those A things, begins with A, uh, or on Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, you name it. We'll see you back here Monday with more BuzzBeat. Starting June 10th, the Fox True Crime Podcast presents The Crimes of O.J. Simpson, 30 Years Later. There are so many tentacles to this story. It's truly hard to put it all into a nutshell. Emily Campagno takes you inside the crime scene and inside the courtroom, bringing you an inside look into the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. If this trial occurred today, there would not be an acquittal. Available on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com.